Welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena, and today our guest is an award-winning entrepreneur, author, and motivational speaker. She is sales and marketing director and co-owner of global mergers and acquisitions company, BCMS. She also grew her own company for 17 years before exiting it, which was launched the same year she lost her eyesight. Since, she has been awarded an MBE and featured on Channel 4's Secret Millionaire. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. We'd love to hear your feedback. Email questions at businessleader.co.uk to get in touch. And now it's time to welcome Liz Jackson to the podcast. Welcome, Liz. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to be here. Your story is a very unique and very inspiring story. How would you describe your journey until now and the position that you're in now? Um, So I guess I would describe it as I wasn't academic at school. That wasn't because I wasn't clever. Uh, I had poor sight. And when I was a teenager, I just wanted to be the same as all the other teenagers. So I hid that well, which meant I was quite naughty, fairly disruptive and left school with very few accomplishments, went to college, didn't really find a difference. And so left academic um, society, if you like, uh, at the age of 17 and got an apprenticeship. And I would say that the world of work was what switched me on to life entirely, to finding a goal, a passion, excitement, talent, all all of those things happened within that apprenticeship, just understanding how exciting it was to, you know, win clients, retain clients, work with people towards a common purpose, build something, earn money. Um, It was just all so eye-opening and it was like I'd entered into a completely different universe and I absolutely loved it just loved it and have never stopped loving the world of work. It's really interesting to hear you say that you weren't necessarily very academic during school and you still sort of ended up in business which can be the case for a lot of business owners if they weren't particularly academic and then came out of or not came out of the schooling system but just apply themselves to business because it was a different sort of mindset yeah and I do you know what I think I am academic Mm -hmm. it's just the learning environment that I was in didn't suit me I'm an avid reader I read you know at least one or two books a week and I would say you know I'm I'm academic I'm a person who loves learning I just didn't enjoy school. And I know lots of people who don't (laughs) enjoy school and the way we educate, but it doesn't mean they're not super academic. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. And and I guess that that is very common for the schooling systems to not really cater to the way that every single person enjoys learning or likes to learn. Did you have any role models growing up who inspired you or anyone that you knew who had created their own business or any entrepreneurs that was some kind of a role model to you growing up? 
Not really entrepreneurs, but I had two very hardworking parents. My dad had to go to college in the evenings to be educated. He came from quite a poor family. And so he really worked his way up from the grassroots to eventually actually becoming a, a board member of the IT company Digital that, you know, he's cleaning swimming pools and going to college in the evenings to do a HND. And my mum was extremely hardworking, used to make a budget for home, go miles and, you know, managed four children, raising four children. We never felt poor. You know, we would go and pick strawberries in the summer holidays and she would make that fun. <laughs> but we needed the money. Um, but I just had two wonderful, hardworking parents who, you know, managed to achieve so much. I'm the only one in my family who didn't go to university in the end. Uh, so all four of us siblings have done well. And it's because my parents just devoted their lives to to raising us well and building a, a a really great home for us. Yeah, that's really powerful. Often it is the case if you do come from a sort of lower income background or maybe had a bit of a harder life growing up, then you tend to sort of have that entrepreneurial spirit sometimes and that can really transcend to the business world. I only want to touch on this for a moment because it is just an aspect of your life. But can you explain how you went blind when you were 26? Because it was the same period of time that you were also starting your your marketing business, which you then ran for kind of 20 years or more. So how did that happen and how did that impact your experience of starting your business? So I was born with a degenerate eyesight condition. It's genetic. It's called retinitis pigmentosus, and it attacks the retina at the back of the eye. My mum was very, very observant. And so at 18 months, she noticed that I was a little bit more clumsy. I don't know how she did that because lots of toddlers are clumsy. She took me to an optician who could see at the back of my eye retinitis pigmentosus, So I was diagnosed very early. It meant I had night blindness and tunnel vision. So it didn't really affect my life very much until, like you say, till I was 26. So I could catch buses on my own. I could get around on my own. I rode a bike. I did all the things that that kids do. And I, I just managed to compensate, I guess, which lots of children do when, they're, when they have a disability. And at the age of 26, the condition just switched on, really. It kind of came alive and I could pick up a book and read it one day. And the next week I couldn't read the book and the following week I couldn't find the book. It was about three months and I went entirely blind and I had started the business you're right so I just started the company as I was pretty excited about that excited and (laughs) uh, you know you sort of get that under pressure determination that mixed with a bit of you know fear so I was pretty wound up in needing to be successful I'd got rent to pay and food to buy and all those sorts of things that you, you you need to, those commitments at 26. So I was driven that way. I'd also just fallen in love 
I'd just met my husband and uh, we'd been going out for about six months. So I'd just fallen in love with him. And honestly, and I speak to all the, you know, I've spoken to people, other blind people about this. And I know that for lots of people, it's a, it's a really big deal. For me, it wasn't. It was more a barrier that just needed getting over. It was a problem that needed to be solved. I needed to find other ways to do things. But I had so much in my life that I was so deeply grateful for. And I just always felt that and have always felt that I've lived a charmed life. And being blind has never really, um, you know, taken anything from that. And in fact, in many ways, I think it's added to it. Yeah, that's that's really amazing to hear sort of your mentality and your approach to it at a time that, you know, many people would have would have found quite difficult. I, I guess there was this big sort of transition in your life and many things were going on at the same time, as you said. So you were starting a business, but also you had found uh, your partner as well. Whilst you were growing your business, how did you go about kind of maintaining the sort of like reassurance and, and confidence of your team at the time, at a time that I suppose, you know, was quite a big shift in the way that maybe you approached leading? I was just very open. So um, I would walk into BizDev meetings and I was very much involved in the front end side of the business in terms of winning clients. And I've always loved that, you know, meeting new people, sharing ideas with them and creating partnerships. That's what drives me. And I would just very quickly, both with my team and with new people, new potential clients, clients, just say, look, I'm blind. This is how I'm dealing with it. If you have any questions, please don't hesitate to ask. And now let's get down to business. And I can't think of any one time ever where anyone's ever had a problem with that. Lots of people are inquisitive. So they'll say, oh, wow, okay, can I ask you this? Or how did you go blind? Or, you know, how does that impact? How do you read your emails? You know, those are the sorts of questions I get. (laughs) How do you get around? You know, those sorts of things. And I just love answering those questions. And honestly, it just makes me memorable, I think. You know, if I'm pitching for some work, and there's other, three other people pitching for for some work. At least they, you know, I create a memory a little bit more. So I just feel that people love it when you're open and honest. And I've never come up against any prejudice or any of those things. People are just overwhelmingly kind and generous. And, you know, if anything I say, it, you know, it creates a level of interest mostly. And I love doing that because I love the idea that there will be more people like me in workplaces. You know, disabled people do bring something, I think, to the workplace because we're so used to solving issues. You know, we've had to do it for a lot of our lives. And so problem solving, how to do things, just becomes second nature to us. It's it's almost innate, if you like. And we see things a different way. And it's, it's another form of diversity that I just think is so great when there's you know, full inclusion. Um, So I do hope that by being open and honest in the work environment, I'm encouraging, you know, people to be more open-minded to embrace many, many more people in the workplace. 80% of blind people of working age don't work. And, you know, I think that's really, really sad. I think the workplace is missing out and I think they are as well. So I'd love to be an agent for change there. 
that's a really powerful thing to remember because diversity and inclusion has almost become this kind of a tick box thing for a lot of businesses uh, at this point in time when in reality it is important to remember that actually people from more diverse backgrounds and life situations can really bring a new perspective because they have a different way of thinking and a, a fresh approach and new approach. So I, I just want to come back to uh, your work with BCMS. This is a mergers and acquisitions company and, and you work on a global scale. What do you think is the most common mistake made by businesses when either they're about to merge or they want to acquire a business? Is there a mistake that comes up really frequently that you've witnessed? So we are involved in advising owners of privately held companies on the sale of their businesses, whether that's, you know, some or all of the company. Um, so we're involved in a very sort of small area of the m and world, if you like. We don't work for corporates. We don't do IPOs. We just advise entrepreneurs. And that's because we love entrepreneurs, you know, all the way through our DNA is this love of people who have founded, scaled something amazing, you know, something from nothing. And they've built an incredible business surrounded by a great talented team, often with in niche services or product offerings. And they just get to a stage um, where they self-assessed and they realize that the business has huge potential, but perhaps not under their leadership. Or some just realize they need a new adventure. So they've done that business for a decade or, or so, and they just want to do something else. Life's short, right? So they want to do, they want to go on to the next thing. So that that's the area of, of the world that we're in. It's what gets us out of bed every day, and we absolutely adore it. I think the biggest mistake that business owners make is not building a business with an exit in mind. And what I mean by that is that if you grow a company through the eyes of an acquirer all the time, so you're thinking, is this business scalable? So is it dependent on me? Is it dependent on any one member of staff? Is it dependent on any one supplier? Have I got processes and systems in place? Is it dependent on any one client? You know, have I got a huge client concentration issue where 80% of my revenue relies on one business? These are all the things that buyers look at in their targets. And they just see all of those elements as risk. And they will apply a low value to that. So the higher the risk, the lower the value. And actually, if the risk is too high, it makes the business unsaleable. So the biggest mistake that business owners do is they grow a business and it's rippled, absolutely ripped through with, with risk. And I do talk to business owners who have done that. And when they get to the point when they want to exit that company, that's not the point that they need to then sort out those risks because it can often mean a lot of work and several more years. And if their energy levels have dipped, then that's really demotivating for them and really hard for them to achieve. So if they build a business, bearing in mind all of the things that create value and move the multiple when they go to sell it, they're delivering choice. So they build a business like that and they get to the point when people are starting to knock on their door and say, we love your business, we'd like to buy it. They've got the choice and go, well, actually, no, I still love my business and I still want to 
run it. I love it. It's great. And uh, I've got a wonderful lifestyle because I've built a business that's not dependent on me. It's full of great people and no risk. So thank you very much. I'm going to keep my business, but it gives them the choice. And that's what's the most important thing for owners is that they have choice. They build a sustainable, profitable business that delivers them all the choices they want whenever they need to make make those decisions. So I think, you know, the biggest mistake people do is they grow a business and it doesn't deliver that choice. It's interesting to hear your perspective on that because I've heard quite a few times business owners and entrepreneurs will say that you can't think about the exit whilst you're scaling your business or you shouldn't because, you know, a business should be a passion project. And, you know, if the passion isn't there and you are only thinking about your exit or thinking about it primarily, then the passion is kind of secondary and it just won't work. Either business won't work or you will end up exiting a lot later because you aren't just thinking about the business itself and the passion itself. Would you disagree with that? No, passion is fine. I I absolutely believe that passion is really, really important in business. And I think lots of the owners we engage with are very, very passionate about their businesses. They're also very, very passionate about their teams. You know, lots of people don't take the highest offer on the table. They take the best fit. So if we take a business to market and they've got five offers on the table from buyers, you know, it might even be offer number three that they take. And it's because they feel that the chemistry is better. They'll look after their team better. They'll support their clients better. It's it's not about the value. And that's all about passion, commitment, vision. That's because they've built something they're really proud of and they want to see it continue. I believe in that passion. All I'm saying is that if you build a business that doesn't have the risk elements in it, you've got the choice. And, you know, I've occupied this seat of BCMS now as sales and marketing director for six years And the calls that I've taken from people who say, I've just been diagnosed with terminal cancer and I'd like to exit my business in the next year. And then you look at the business and it's riddled with risk. And that's a very, very sad conversation to have to have with someone. They might sell it, you know, anything's sellable at the end of the day, but not for maximum value. You know, if they haven't scaled it, and I would say scaled it responsibly, because a business that's being scaled responsibly secures employment for the staff. It means that you're a reliable supplier to your clients. You know, a business without risk in it is a reliable business that's sustainable. And there, there can be nothing bad about that. And just one way of looking at that is to look at it through the eyes of a buyer, because it's the same way that they assess their decision to purchase you and whether they want to bid for you. That's really good advice, Liz. Thank you. And you mentioned that the risks that you have witnessed within a business, which has the potential to prohibit an exit. What do those risks usually look like? And what can a business do to stop themselves from entering into that risk zone? So there, there are common ones and they tend to be industry specific. So there will be, you know, for different sectors, there will be a shopping list, if you like, of information that we'd want to re- receive to assess a business. But to give you some of the key ones are definitely client concentration. So you will often find that someone has built a business off the back of one 
client um and you know if that concentration looks like more than about 30 percent you know diluting that's a good idea we can certainly sell businesses that have got 30 percent concentration and have done but it's something that makes us a little bit nervous and buyers so that sort of area is i would say is really really typical that someone's built a business where there's a concentration issue They've probably built a business that's reliant on them. You know, you do find that owners of businesses quite often will keep a lot of the decision making or the client relationships to themselves and haven't delegated that around their team. So those are some of the elements that we'd want to address. Owning their own IP, owning their patents, making sure that their contracts are in place I hear lots of people talk about gentleman agreements and, you know, shaking of hands. That's really great until you come to sell the company. Anyone reliance on a supplier? You know, if if you get everything that's supplied comes in from one factory in China, you know, just really understanding the reliance of that and what are the options if that factory burnt down? You know, all the risk. These are some of the things that we come up against kind of typically but it is on a case-by-case basis, depending on the sector. That's really good information to have. Are there any unique challenges in mergers and acquisitions overseas or on a global scale? Is there a unique challenge involved in that process that you can maybe give some advice on? No, I don't think so. Um, Every process we run is competitive because we're sell-side. Every process we run is entirely competitive we don't work for buyers and within that bidding environment you know you will often have you know a multitude of bidders from all sorts of areas of the world some will be PE companies some will be trade-back PE firms some will be trade you know and we you know we treat them all the same we're respectful of their culture we're M&A we work around the clock (laughs) and um, I don't think there's any barriers we certainly haven't noticed any barriers. It often just comes down to the seller, actually, and the deal that's created and the chemistry with that buyer. And that's so much down to people. Definitely. I think it's important to touch on the fact that the chemistry between sort of the buyer and seller is really important. And yeah, it boils down to the people involved in the process. I just want to move on to speaking about diamonds and colours. I know that that's something that you're uh, really passionate about and you've been involved in. So would you tell us a bit about what diamonds and colours is and, and why you've started this? This is a network for women at the top of their profession. And I was having a glass of fizz out with a friend who's in the same sector And we were just talking about some of the amazing women we'd met throughout our careers and the role models that we'd had. And the one thing that we together felt these women had in common was, number one, they were super successful. But number two, they'd been very kind and they had in some way been able to use their position to leverage our careers. And... We just felt that we needed to get those women together because we had been frustrated about the amount of funding that was given to women business owners 
and the struggle in getting investors uh, for women-led early-stage companies. And we also felt that there just wasn't enough diversity at board level and that there weren't enough women being considered for non-exec roles. And so we felt that we would open this network, invite people to join that met that criteria of being successful but being kind, who joined with a commitment to opening a space next to them in the areas that they occupy. And we held our first event in Mayfair. I was thrilled that Helen Swaby, who is the owner of the Whitewall Gallery brand, incredible entrepreneur and completely fulfills all of that criteria, has hosted the events. And we had 80 women uh, in the room, very highly decorated room, and not just because it was an art gallery, but because there were lots of people there with MBEs, OBEs, dames, all committed uh, to this this, um, objective of bringing more women into uh, the places that we are. And not for any other reason, but that it's the right thing to do, number one. And number two, business, academia, every area will benefit if we create more diversity. It will impact the way we look after our clients, our students, and it will effectively just make us more successful, more profitable, and our outcomes will be better. So it's all done with common sense and kindness at the heart of what we're about. That sounds fantastic. And it is really important to have those spaces where female entrepreneurs and women at the top of their professions can really come together and and learn from each other. Um, You mentioned there that kindness is really something that is at the heart of Diamonds and Colours. And I have heard it sort of being described as a network for women who want to create a culture of kindness. What does this mean to you? And do you think that there is something fundamentally unique and beneficial about being a female leader? So I'm lucky. I I work at BCMS number one and BCMS is led by two men and two women. And I have to say that my colleague, Jonathan Dunn, who is our CEO, who's part of that leadership team, of course, I would say he's kinder than me often. <laughs> and I, I'm influenced by him often because he, he is a very original, unique individual. He's just very, very kind um, and will go out of his way always to make introductions, to go the extra mile, always, always does that. He sets an example and I've continued that example. I've always been passionate about kindness, but to be in a business that's employee owned, you know, in in our sector, it's very rare that a corporate finance firm would be owned 51% by the staff. That's because kindness is at the heart of who we are as business. It's so important that we enjoy working together, but everyone feels fairly treated and everyone feels in it together, if you like. So in terms of whether I think female leaders are kinder than male leaders, I don't know. I don't think that's right. I think it's the environments you create. And that's why I wanted to create Diamonds and Colours, because it's an environment that will draw out kindness and put it to the top of the agenda so that people will go that extra mile. They'll go out of their way to make those introductions. It'll become 
more heightened in their minds and more of, you know, their mission. The reason why I asked that question is because of that kind of focus on this word kindness and how it's often associated with women, you know, because of, I guess it's associated with femininity. Whereas I think the business world has typically been associated with more like masculine characteristics, so to speak. And maybe this wasn't even necessarily the the purpose of using the word kindness or, or trying to make that a focus of, of the group. But to sort of break down and make the business world a space that doesn't necessarily just need to be dominated by more masculine qualities and characteristics. And actually it can be a space that's full of a lot of like mixed different characteristics. And it doesn't just have to be this hard and strong approach to business. Look, there's a levelling up job to do, which is why we've got Diamonds in Colours and it's it's for women. But in my dream of dreams, wouldn't it be great if you know, Diamonds in Colours was half men, half women eventually because, you know, we'd have such an impact. And I know there's lots of organisations out there with this focus, but we are just better together. You know, working environments, we just need each other. Men and women work so well together. We challenge each other well. We draw things out. We watch each other's behaviour. You know, all of those sorts of things and so one day, I, I hope there is no need for any gender specific kind of groups. It's, we're just all in it together. Yeah, that's really great. Thank you, Liz. Um, I just want to come on to your style of leadership and your, your personal style of leadership that you have cultivated. What would you say is the most significant realisation you've had about being a leader? I think probably I would have been guilty of thinking it was all about me um, in the old days. And if things were successful, it was because I made them successful. And if they failed, it was because of me. I still think that, but actually, (laughs) if things fail, I, I tend to want to take the responsibility. But my style of leadership now is much more about empowering the people around me, hiring great people, better people than me, to work around me, to coach them into coming up with their own objectives, their own goals, and help them to think well, to consider how they're going to achieve their goals, and then just drop in with them on a regular basis to kind of see how they're getting uh, along towards achieving that. That seems to work amazingly well you know, actually allowing people to think for themselves, come up with their own goals and just support them in achieving them, making sure they obviously align with the company objectives. I'm also not frightened anymore of challenging people when I see perhaps them not doing what they should um, or achieving what I think their potential would allow. Um, So challenging conversations, really happy to do that. I've just, yeah, BCMS, we've got a coaching culture. And, you know, I've always just felt that we hire amazingly talented people. Why would we lead them in any other way? You know, they're just so great. Uh, and so that that's totally my style of leadership. But I've grown into that. <laughs> I, I definitely didn't used to be like that, you know, 15, 20 years ago. It's, it's stuff I've learned. And, and actually stuff I've learned as I've become 
more comfortable in my own skin. You know, my DNA is a salesperson and that I can be quite, you know, I have been quite unattractive in the past, you know, wanting to take the glory uh, for a deal I've got, you know, wanting to be that person who's clapped when you achieve certain things. You know, unfortunately, that's that competitive streak in, in me has wanted to achieve that. I'm comfortable in my own skin. You know, I'm pretty comfortable with who I am and what I can achieve. And these days we collaborate. What, what we achieve, we achieve together. And I am so thrilled when anyone in our business has a great out- outcome and learning to live vicariously through them, you know, just loving to see them succeed. And if I can be part of that success, then it's brilliant. But yeah, I haven't always been that person, but I'm glad I am now. So you mentioned there that your approach to having difficult conversations has maybe changed as you've been a leader. Would you say that as leadership styles and society and the way that society kind of perceives leadership as well has sort of changed over the past 20, 30 years or longer, would you say that that has also had an impact on the way that you have been a leader, even when you owned your own business and was leading there? Would you say that that has had a big impact on it? Because I think now it's a lot more common for leaders to sort of take on those more vulnerable characteristics and and let themselves be vulnerable in their leadership style, which might not have been a thing as much before. (laughs) I I don't know. Um, I guess I've always been lucky to be surrounded by some amazing leaders. You know, in the early days in my old business, one of our clients was the Institute of Customer Service led by Joe Corzen, um, who is a wonderfully vulnerable leader. And so I witnessed her style of leadership. Des Benjamin, who was the CEO of Simply Health, became my chairman at my last business. And again, just a, a vulnerable, amazing, kind, human a person delivering, you know, extremely incredible outcomes that simply have both these business leaders at the top of their game delivering great outcomes. And, you know, I love books like Good to Great by Jim Collins and, uh, you know, I've, I've read a lot of books and the ones that I've always enjoyed the most and have respected have been those leaders where, you know, they have those characteristics that I really respect. And I think they've always existed. And I think they those kinds of leaders have always stood out. And I think people have always loved working for them. And uh, I, I just think you tend to be drawn to people who inspire you. And I always have been. So I think those leaders have always been, you know, have always existed in great organisations. And uh, today, I think we probably value that level of leadership more. I hope we do anyway. That's really interesting. Thanks, Liz. I've read recently that you have spoken about why an entrepreneur or a business owner shouldn't treat their business as though it's their baby and why it's quite important to sort of have boundaries. What did you mean by this and why is that important? So I think it comes back to what we've talked about before a little bit in terms of as you grow your business, you know, you've got to look at it through a different lens and you know it's hard if you're viewing it as a baby some people 
and I, I probably was guilty of this in in the early days of running my business as well is actually it's quite nice to be needed <laughs> you know my identity would have been rolled up in my business so my business was dependent on me and I enjoyed it I was responsible for them and I enjoyed it. You know, when you build something that's heavily dependent on you because it gives you a lot of self-worth, you know, you feel that sense of importance and it becomes, you know, a real strong identity. The problem with that is, is that can be good when things are good. If you build a business like that, that really is a baby, you know, it's dependent on you all the time and it never grows up, then it, it just gets tiresome. You know, when, when the times are tough and you, you know, you really want to have a bit of separation time, you can't. It makes it really hard to pursue other things, you know, like family or perhaps you want to sit on another board or, you, you know, you want to do other things that aren't just about this business, And you can't because you've built something entirely dependent on you because it's a baby and it's still a baby. And when it screams, it stops being something you enjoy getting out of the bed in the middle of the night to go and soothe and you flipping ate it. Um, And actually your relationship with the business changes and it becomes quite toxic. And that's when, you know, I receive the calls with people just saying, I hate this thing. (laughs) I just want to sell it as fast as I can. But again, you can't. And through necessity and growth, most people are forced to change that, actually, um, because they just can't. They get tired. and, And because the business grows, they actually are forced to change it because they can't physically do it. But if they don't go through that process then that business just does say stay small and uh, infantile. And um, it's probably just due to fail, actually, at some point soon. Yeah, I think that is a really important thing to remember to have those boundaries. But yeah, it's especially important if you are a business owner who maybe has a bit of imposter syndrome or kind of low self-esteem, for example, or uh, perfectionism or something might that might force you further into really wanting to vote more time or all of your time to your business because of that fear of failure um, and that fear of not doing what you have set out to achieve but also what everybody else around you is kind of like looking at you and expecting you to achieve achieve as well is it's uh it is difficult i just want to quickly come back to your work uh with your diamonds and colors and and kind of the work that you do with other women in sort of the top of their profession and you mentioned that a big part of that is helping these female entrepreneurs or, or female people in business get into sort of executive positions. And I, I think a part of that is really enabling and empowering women to have confidence. What advice would you give to, say, someone who wants to get into an executive position, but maybe has low confidence or doesn't really know how to go about asking for it or achieving that? Well, unfortunately, this advice is probably not very psychological (laughs) because my advice really is just do it I think one of the biggest frustration that I hear around senior people is they they are just not getting enough CVs coming forward and they would like the choice to recruit a woman into the role 
but they're not seeing enough applicants. Now, is that a confidence issue or is it because they find it unattractive? I don't know. I don't know what the answer is there, but my recommendation would be to go for it. Every time I've been scared in business, and I am still scared in business quite often, just doing it despite the fear has always ended up being a wonderful experience. It's been a wonderful experience if I've, despite the fear, achieved something great and accomplished whatever I set out to do. And if I failed, it's been an incredible learning experience and it's helped me to, you know, learn so that I can be successful next time round. It really is, please just do it. Please consider going for it. You know, if you're a middle manager now and you want to be senior, please just go for it. Don't feel you have to have everything for that job. Go have the interview. Get your face in front of somebody. Have a have that opportunity for them to learn about you, your ambitions and dreams, your ideas. Get noticed. And if you get the job, brilliant. And if you don't, you've got noticed and perhaps that it starts a you know a, a discussion around how you get to that next role and if you're already really successful then join diamonds in colors and we'll help you there will be someone in the network who will recognize your talent and will create that space for you that's really important just do it basically um we're not sponsored by Nike or anything, but that is that is a really good thing to remember and thing to go over in your mind. Um, now we, we've come to the, the last segment of the podcast, and this is a segment called Answer the Internet. This is where we scour the internet for the questions that the public needs answers to. And this question is from Reddit, and it's from a user called yellow underscore party hat. And they ask... In a business merger, what happens to the executives in each of the companies? Uh, Well, it depends. So that is always down to preference. So when we sell a business, there will often be more than one shareholder in that company. And there may be a management team who also have shares. And some or all may want to stay and some may want to leave. I mean, there is always a period of handover, but it's always collaborative. And actually, a seller will choose a deal often based on what's going to happen with the executives as well. But it's really clear that we understand that strategy right from day one and we'll create the deal that meets the needs of the owners. We are Business Leader magazine. So we, we ask this to all of our guests on the podcast, but what makes a great business leader to you? I think we've talked a lot about it today, but I would say somebody who is absolutely sold out for passion for their organisation, their people and their impact. For us, it's, it's the three C's. So our colleagues, our clients and our community. And as leaders, we are sold out with ambition for those three areas. Our ambition isn't for ourselves. It's for our business, our colleagues, our clients and our community. And we put that stuff, we mandate it between us and we challenge each other on it. But that stuff comes before us and that those things have got to be well cared for, well stewarded 
before anything else. I always love leaders that are that take the hit when things fail and and give everyone the glory when they succeed. And those are the those are the business leaders that just make me smile. You just think, oh, you know, I just love you. You are awesome. Now that that brings us to the end of the podcast, Liz, and to finish us off, do you have any final words for the listeners today? Love it. Just love it. Live for today. It's a short life. And I think for me, it's learning to live in the moment. In the past, I've spent much too much time focusing on, you know, what I've done in the past or worrying about the future. I think today is a gift. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I just want to live it. I want to enjoy it. I want to enjoy it with people that I get to work with, the clients we get to serve, the foundations that we get to contribute to and the family I uh, get to be a part of and the friends I have and I just want to live today for today and my advice would be the same just make the most of today 